0: Hello, guys. Today's guest, Sabrina Konzok, social entrepreneur and board member of Social Entrepreneurship Network Deutschland. So quite naturally, we discussed uh, the topic of social entrepreneurship in Germany. What are the pros and cons of being one? Uh, how to merge the best of both worlds, non-profit and for-profit? Uh, if you're curious, what could be your next steps if you want to become a social entrepreneur? That's the right place for you. And today's episode is a very special one. It was created in collaboration with Impact Hub Berlin. Hi guys, welcome back to Founding Impact. Today we're gonna talk about social entrepreneurship with Sabrina Konzak. Sabrina, welcome to our studio.
1: Thanks so much for having me today. Hello,
2: hello. Yeah,
0: so um, as I said, social entrepreneurship, but before we deep dive into it, I'm super curious to hear your story because uh, it's quite Unusual, you were involved in non-profits. Now you turn into business and try to like, you know, merge to do those two worlds together. How how did it go? How did you adapt that?
1: It? Uh, it's a good question. I had to think about that, um, how, to, how to tell that story and not get too excessively long. Um, I would say like how my best friends, I guess, would describe it. I'm one of those crazy people um, who don't really respect how things work right now and actually think they could change that. So you can imagine a bit uh, childhood days and and crazy arguments with parents uh, mm-hmm. connected to that. But um, what really kind of strengthened that kind of, I would say, characteristic of mine was um, I lived abroad like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot uh, since finishing school. So first in Uganda with Red Cross and then I studied in Singapore and in Amsterdam and I worked in Vietnam and South Africa. So uh, kind of all over and in very different cultures and um, what really taught me that was that that status quo that we kind of for example growing up in germany find as the normal it's kind of just something we all create and that also differentiates a lot uh, depending on where you live and how you've grown up um what then also means the status quo is something we can change right Mm -hmm. and um, this is kind of what has driven me throughout the whole the whole pathway and I kind of started because um, how you do that in Germany, very often you kind of join a volunteering organization mm-hmm. in your teenage years, especially if you grow up on the countryside, um, I did in the Black Forest. So I joined the Red Cross and then I turned to like uh, from local level to international level in the end, like leading a big network that they have with like 53 countries and like 1.5 million volunteers who were in it. And it was super exciting uh, journey and story. and um, when I ended up in Berlin after that, I kind of felt like, okay, I need something like that makes me feel even more uh, in the driver's seat and being able to kind of steer the wheel and finding different solutions to all those challenges out there. And um, for those who know him, like uh, Markus Sawahama is one of the founders from the Social Entrepreneurship Network uh, together with many others. Um, but I met him and then I kind of fell in love with that whole social entrepreneurship idea and that whole sector, how it lives and stands today. Um, which then like few years after there was 2018 led me to yeah being on the board of send we've grown to like 20 uh, staff now and uh, over 800 members which is amazing and also led me to kind of in my work life um like outsourcing current digital out of an NGO and and leading that as a managing director
2: so would you say that um the experience abroad that you had led you to um, being in, in social entrepreneurship later on, or it didn't really matter because as a teenager you already knew more or less that the path you wanted to follow uh, by joining Red Cross.
1: It's a good a good question. So as a teenager, for sure, I thought I knew my path <laughs> yeah. because I always thought I'm gonna um, end up in this Red Cross career, which kind of means. You're uh, kind of in like hardship stations, very often abroad as well, in conflict areas. That's why I studied conflict resolution, for example, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to go that way. But um, I also didn't know at all what startups were. And I didn't know anything about like something like social innovation. So that was completely new to me. And I think what always kind of triggered me is that If you're on the ground, um, for example, in in Uganda, right, you're always there and you're trying your best to tackle the challenges that are there, but kind of your hands are very often tied because you can't change the challenges, right? You can Mm -hmm. only kind of alleviate the suffering as as, um, it's often called. And that's great and that's a super important job, but it kind of, yeah, it never felt satisfying enough. And I always felt like there has to be another Uh, screw that I can touch um, and find in order to, yeah, to also change some of the challenges at the beginning before they even exist or like make them take another turn. And for me, like social entrepreneurship is that perfect mix of, you know, trying to um, have a world that's like socially responsible, but also um, economically sustainable. So it stands on its own feet. And yeah, so now it looks a bit like it was all meant to be, but (laughs) for sure not when I was a teenager.
2: Okay, but you had this chance to really see things firsthand, how they look like in less developed countries. And that kind of strengthened your idea for your career and for your future. And at the same time, I can imagine it must have felt a bit powerless in some cases where you when you couldn't um, influence things. And also this led to you looking for like more leverage to actually make changes uh by running companies and so on
1: totally and maybe like one concrete example to give that is that often um i think the best way is to empower people so they become as independent as possible from the aid you're actually giving and um like when i lived in uganda we started a very tiny project um with like goats because it's one of the best uh, kind of income generating activities so if you give a family a goat a female goat actually that means the goat can reproduce, get kids, and then out of many, many goats, you can then buy something from it. And um, it's so sustainable because we only had to buy the first goat. Mm-hmm. And then we made people sign a contract. The first child of your goat has to go to someone else in your community. Yep. And the rest you can keep. And um, it's very small project, like compared to other things, but it's still running mm-hmm. like 10 years after. And there are people like who bought uh, like a piece of land you know to grow stuff or a cow or a new roof you know or like send their kids to school but not because you know someone made donations 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 for 10 years just because someone 10 years ago donated like 35 euros to buy that one goat right so yeah. Uh, am <laughs> serious?
0: How many goats uh, <laughs> were born since, the, since the, the project started? I'm
1: curious. Uh, a Probably lot. <laughs> uh, I can ask because uh, the, the colleague and friend of mine who started it with me, he's Ugandan, mm-hmm. and he now actually founded his own organization out of the project. So I don't know how many there are, but I guess there are a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> we started with 50, I think. Uh, okay, that's a nice start.
2: Now, going maybe a bit more into your existing activities, I'm especially curious about social entrepreneurship in Netzwerk Deutschland. Uh, Could you tell us a bit more uh, what this organization does? What's your role? Um,
1: Totally. So, um, in short, it's uh, SEND. And SEND was founded originally by um, a lot of social entrepreneurs and stakeholders that were already active in the sector for quite long, Um, and they found that um, we actually get approached a lot by politicians and by other stakeholders but we always get approached as individual actors and we actually don't have one common noise in order to really like speak up and uh, kind of yeah create a, a whole ecosystem in the place that we actually want to see in Germany for social enterprises. So they founded Zend in order to... Um, kind of do different things like, first of all, increase visibility for that kind of uh, doing business and Mm -hmm. for that kind of startups and companies, because I think it's still like super unknown. And as I said, like before actually getting to know Zend, I also didn't know that exists Um, to increase the awareness, obviously, and also to um, be that lobby for good how we call it um, because lobbyism often is like a bit with a negative connotation and (laughs) a little little bit maybe and we want to change that so of course we want to be more transparent but of course we also want to kind of lobby for a different way of approaching uh, our challenges and also of how to do business and then how we also see ourselves is like we want to be the player that kind of builds the bridges between what's already there and that's in parts of course politics but also Um, economics so like companies and corporates that are already there but also welfare actors and also civil society because very often they're working on kind of similar topics challenges or innovations but there's not really like link between them or pathways to scale good ideas for example Um, so that's it in a nutshell and the send was founded like the official kick out first 2018 before that there was a crowdfunding Mm -hmm. campaign and then um, yeah like few years later now, um, I would say we're quite, quite uh, big and strong, and yeah, trying to get stronger and even bigger, of course, in
0: the future. Can you give us some examples of like success stories of like lobbying aspects that you, you did in those three years? What happened? What were? Was there positive change? Like increase in numbers of entrepreneurs, awareness among politicians? What what happened in this time?
1: So I would say as we're um, publishing it soon again, so on 27th of April, we are going to publish uh, our fourth round of the German Social Entrepreneurship Monitor, which in the end is like our annual study on showing like how does the ecosystem look like? So like who's there? um, What are they actually working on? How many staff members do they have? What impact field are they working on? and um, also what do they need. So there's a lot of studies before that are tried to rank kind of governments of cross countries on like how they perform on social entrepreneurship. And we try to zoom in and really give that like a very concrete glimpse uh, on how we do and what can be done uh, to improve that. And I think that's the most crucial thing because you need data and you need the numbers uh, in order to kind of follow up over time, like, how does the sector develop, how do companies grow? And I think that's, that's for sure one of the biggest success stories, like, to be able to do that and to also get the attention, because we often have, like, politicians even joining the discussion rounds, um, and that's kind of the baseline of our work. And then, obviously, like, what we love the most is that Um, It's kind of a bit incredible, like after the last elections, obviously, there's always uh, in Germany coalition negotiations uh, between the parties that want to uh, rule the country together and um, social innovation and also social entrepreneurship and everything related to that is kind of very heavily um, kind of visible in the coalition contract. And I think that's one of the biggest achievements, because if it's not in there, it's most likely not going to happen in that period. Um, And I think... What even like, shows that success even more is that, um, unfortunately, one of the board members has to leave us now. I had to leave us um, for a good reason, because she's now kind of the spokesperson at the Ministry of Education for mm-hmm. social innovation and that whole kind of issue area, mm-hmm. like that's Sarah that's Brun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's the best thing that could happen, right? Like a social entrepreneur herself now um, really like making the link uh, to the government institution and, and trying to... Push policies and everything related to that forward. We
0: have to make sure to, you know, read the report. Uh, you are a big fan <laughs> of numbers, so seeing that there is a change that puts some structure and give the understanding of how much actually there is, it might be like eye-opening for many people. So we have to write down the data.
2: But speaking about the report, um, would it be possible to reveal some of the learnings and trends <laughs> that, that you? Before the Tricky.
1: publication, <laughs> depending on when the podcast is published, no. But um, I would, I would for sure like uh, convince everyone to download it as soon as it's there. I think what I can reveal, obviously, like um, we see both, right? Like we see like a massive window of opportunity in general, and that's connected not just to like German legislation, but also to what happens on European level. So with the new um, EU economy, uh, social economy action plan that's coming out with all the kind of banks at least trying to look in the direction of like more sustainable finance solutions and and pathways Um, there's a lot of good stuff happening but then on the other side I mean there's still like the challenges haven't like changed right and the challenges still are like a massive gap for like proper uh, investments like both in the very early stage phase Mm -hmm. but even more so in the scaling phase right Mm -hmm. Um, which is where I'm in right now (laughs) as well so maybe we'll get to that but Like that whole impact investing sector that's growing and that's amazing but it's still lacking a lot of um, power it could actually have in order to yeah push those companies um, above and beyond because the ones that are very strong right now and i think are the the really good examples for the whole ecosystem sometimes they might have also done it completely without investing in bootstrapping right which in the startup ecosystem is not unheard of, but like so unlikely, right? So yeah. just imagining what would happen if only that financing aspect would change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that are still there and it's going to be in the report for sure, I think. <laughs> yeah.
2: Since the organization was, was um, um, started like in 2018, now four years after, how do you see that the situation changed over this time? Is it easier for social entrepreneurs to, to do their business, to get financing? Or do you, is, do you see any kind of driving force that helps or doesn't help uh, the industry?
1: Of course, you could always say it was all sent, but that would be completely <laughs> wrong. So I think like that window of opportunity that I described, like it's a mix of all different kinds of aspects, right? And on one hand, it's for sure Friday is for Future that, mm-hmm. you know, Not even only because of the political pressure, but maybe more because of the kind of uh, change of mind in the consumer heads, right? Mm -hmm. So because if you have like a product and a consumer product, and let's say it's even like in the food sector or whatever, um, if the mindset changes that I'm starting to look at what I buy, that is like a massive impact that you can have, right? Um, So there's different... Again, things like pieces of the puzzle that are coming together. And I think that's that's uh, yeah, creating that, that change. And compared to 2018, for sure, um, there's a lot of those pieces that have been falling into place. Um, and I mean, changes and shifts in government, for sure, are part of it. Um, part of it, for sure, is also that people start to understand the terminology a bit better. Mm-hmm. So, like, the first politicians, and I wasn't the person, but I know it from colleagues who were... First, starting to talk to people, um, I mean, they had, they had to explain really what it is. Yeah. And I think now we're getting more to a point where people start to know what it is and trying mm-hmm. to find a better way of how to tackle it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's I think, the biggest thing. If you know what you're talking about, that's a yeah. good start. <laughs> I, I, I
0: fully agree. Like, we are um, having similar problems sometimes when we talk about impact investing in mm. the uh, markets that are, let's say, A little bit less knowledgeable about about what that is. For example, in Germany, it's not not really a problem. Everyone um, uh, knows, like, agree on the concept, etc. But we go a bit further east, for example, and there exactly this lack of understanding still exists, and it's really creating like a wall Mm -hmm. of understanding between us, what we want to achieve, what we expect, and between the the person that uh, is like what
2: yes sometimes it's it's they 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 understand what you say like the words but not the meaning behind it
1: or they push you i don't know if it ever happens to you like usually like what happens to me is they push you in the csr area or they push you completely on the ngo side of the spectrum Mm -hmm. and that's like yeah both both kind of wrong right so
0: I think that's also sp- very specific to social entrepreneurship yeah. itself, because in impact investing, it's a little bit more general and it like tackles different, also not only social social aspects, but also other like climate. But with social, I think it's very common to mm. s- see it more like an area for non-profits or NGOs um, activities than the business itself, right? So, how would you say where's the the, the border between between one and another? Maybe there's none. Maybe that's just we all work the same. How how
1: do you see this? It's for sure uh, one of the biggest challenges, I guess, in in most discussions always. Um, also in our lovely report, <laughs> <laughs> advertising a lot. No, but uh, we usually always have an overview and also, of course, our way of uh, of understanding it and defining it. And it usually is that scale, right, where it has different shades again. Mm. Um, but the the borders are still rather clear, right? So. Um, there's a differentiation between what an NGO does and what an like more innovation driven uh, mm-hmm. social yeah. startup for example does that has a different governance structure and also it's very clear that like if you come from the CSR side it's not enough to say okay we donate five euros a month to I don't know what right like it has to be really ingrained in what you do and what the mission of your business is and in a way that ideally it also can't be changed. Um, just on a, on a glimpse, right, by, mm-hmm. for example, having another investor in, right, because that's also part of the deal, um, how to kind of protect the mission and not uh, have a mission drift when you try to, to get in external mm-hmm. partners and stakeholders to grow. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion yeah. always, for sure.
0: Maybe, exactly, maybe, like, uh, shining some light into, like, how actually social entrepreneurships entrepreneurship looks like we can use uh, the example of kiron right Mm -hmm. Uh, to to describe the process of like you know turning from non-profits into successful business Uh, can you tell us uh, what kiron is doing like that your specific area of activities right now
1: maybe an unconventional story but maybe not as Mm -hmm. unconventional within the social enterprise sector Mm -hmm. so um kiron originally started 2015 in order to Um, help refugees back then a lot of syrians obviously in that period uh, coming to germany and helping them into education and therefore like a better life again like Mm -hmm. standing on their own feet um, as quickly as possible Um, and in order to do that um, the ngo side of chiron like had a lot of um, courses and pathways in order to bring them into higher education Mm -hmm. so we had a lot of university partnerships and. like other partners and a lot of content that we curated and created and put on a platform. So that is kind of um, the story where we come from. And obviously now that part has also developed and has offices in Jordan and Lebanon as well, Uh, goes into refugee camps and does amazing work. Um, But after some years also was facing like two things, like one really big challenge, one really big opportunity. And the challenge is, and that happens to, I think like every NGO so there's no real differentiation um, is that up and down of like um, migration finances so no matter if you do education you know for migrants or refugees or if you do kind of also all kinds of other services like it goes up and down as the as the kind of crisis situation goes up and down which from a political standpoint might be a bit understandable, uh, but is completely unsustainable for the organizations uh, trying to tackle those issues for their target group. Um, so facing that, we also had that big opportunity that we actually built our own learning platform. Um, and why did we do that? Like, I mean, the target group that uh, we're working with had different challenges, which one of them is low bandwidth, for example, right? Because we have like students and learners in in a Kalkuma camp in Kenya, and you can imagine how good bandwidth or also devices are. So like we have a platform that's working right well with um, low bandwidth situations, but also is mobile first and works on like older mobile devices. So we had that as well, and then we figured, okay, actually there are so many other organizations that have the same challenges, might even work in a similar situation or sector or setup. Um, and we have the platform, but we don't want to kind of um, kind of shift the current campus away from refugees because they are still, like, really still a very overlooked group. And I mean, only the numbers globally from, I don't know, I think when I started at Karen was at 60 million. I think now we are, I don't know at what point actually right now with the Ukrainian crisis. But um, we wanted to keep that target group. Um, so we said, okay, let's reuse that and actually take what we have as an asset and a skill and uh, make that available to others while at the same time creating a sustainable finance pathway for the NGO and that's why we founded Chiron digital then um, which is where I'm working and where we're kind of selling the, the learning platform that we have as software as a service
2: could you could you say a bit more about the structure that you chose because it's a very interesting uh, an interesting case for us like that the mother organization is a nonprofit. Uh, but at the same time you decided to create a spin-off um, with a slightly different business model but also as a for-profit organization. How did you come up to to, to the conclusion that that's the right setup?
1: It was a long discussion process as <laughs> I <well>. can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean uh, the CEO of our uh, kind of NGO side and the NGO side uh, I have to say as well it's a G GmbH which is like a legal mm-hmm. form that also doesn't exist in every country. Um, but yeah, so the, the CEO of our NGO side, um, he has thought about that a lot longer than I think we discussed about it. Um, but in the end, like there are several aspects to it. And one of the key things, obviously, is that in Germany you um, should be very sure that you do everything correctly, simply given like tax reasons and legal reasons in order to not lose your non-profit status which I think is very good, you know, to also protect that and um, be aware of that. And on the other hand, um, what you're trying to do is still very different, right? So on the NGO side, you're looking at kind of the end customer and the learner, which is like refugees. And on my side, we're looking at the customer more also from a tech angle and as as a client in the end, right? And of course, also as a partner, but as a client who also expects certain things. So if you mix... Both of those focuses in one company, even if it would legally work, um, you kind of don't have two different cultures in a company. Mm -hmm. And I very much believe that you need that a bit uh, in order to cater the best way to the different needs.
2: I mean, so separating the two concepts makes sense into two different organizations. But still, instead of like um, spinning off as a, as a nonprofit, you decided to go with, with a for-profit. Is it is it does it depend on your business model or there was some some other thinking into it?
1: Totally as well. I mean, um, again, looking at impact investing and at least how it looks like in Germany, it's very, very, very hard to get any investment if you have a nonprofit status. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like in, in the future, I think that should change, but I think being realistic, like we were just taking the situation as it is and we said, okay, the um, potential to actually get also some funding at some point, which is rather likely, is a lot higher if we have like a, okay. a for-profit company. If it's like
2: a proper business and yeah. then someone is more willing to fund your activities and since it's funded, then it's easier to scale and it's, the bigger the scale, the more impact and so on. Yeah. And especially,
1: okay. again, um, looking at the fact that it's a tech product at heart, right? Yep. And that's always the the hardest ever to finance over project money, right? Because usually, like, it's that uh, kind of projectism, or however you translate it correctly, that, that we call it in Germany, it's like, everyone wants a new sexy project, but nobody wants to fund the sustainable growth of a digital product or any other structure mm. that kind of makes an organization come to life in the first place. Um, so, uh. you know, like having a tech product and having also the needs that the tech product has, like improving, you know, only on like front end, like UX design, like basic things like that, but also growing feature wise mm. and growing in complexity and then yeah, capability and whatever um that's another part right like how do you finance that for example if you um if you just do it out of your own uh in- income and revenues um as an ngo that's almost impossible <laughs> it's doable so karen did it for very long but um up to a certain point i think and now yeah that that was so another reason why you we say
0: that the problem is that the typical donors like on the charitable side they are not really keen to invest in this modern tech solutions because they don't understand it. They prefer to see like, you know, hands-on approach, let's help those people on the streets, just going, giving blankets, etc. instead of like, let's build a solution that in the long term will help even more people, but okay, you need some time to get there.
1: That's that's for sure part of the truth. Yeah. I mean, also, first of all, because it's more expensive, maybe, yeah. you know, like on the first, if you look at it, uh, let's say like you have a blank page, right, and you yeah. don't have like something existing. I mean, it always looks a lot more um, yeah, expensive and it takes a lot longer until it even can have an impact. So that's the yeah. first hurdle for sure. But um, on the other hand, obviously... What often happens if that if there is such such sort of money for such projects is that the likelihood of building another silo from scratch mm-hmm. is like super high. So that's another really big problem um, I just talked about as well at a, at a different summit. Because like if you finance another um, product built by another agency, it's very often not um, linkable with anything else that exists. And it's kind of catering to the needs of that one organization and that one target group. But given that, you know, if you really talk about the social sector only, I mean, they're all kind of trying to reach similar goals, right? So it completely doesn't make any sense to build another platform here, another platform there, and Mm -hmm. then you don't have money to even build the the APIs between them. And that's what still happens very often, I think, Um, Mm -hmm. and what we are at least envisioning to change in some parts, right? Because if you're getting better at connecting different systems and you have like, um, a core system on um, what parts of it at least run on um, it gets a lot easier and also a lot like financially sustainable because it's cheaper right than building so the how to combine
0: this uh, need for collaboration between different business players and the competitiveness of the market itself that's that's a huge challenge like tricky uh, i would even say interesting, uh, even
2: like a mind uh, exercise. But I, and I'm curious, like, how do you address this problem with uh, Chiron Digital so not to become the, the next uh, silo? It's a
1: good question. Um, and that's also, I mean, we learned a lot in the past year, I would say. And we learned mostly from our customers and from people we talked with, because Um, at the beginning of course you think like okay now if we are a business we have to kind of think in the same rationale as other businesses and you're very quickly you know driving towards a way of like oh my god you know like monthly fees aren't high enough or whatever right like all those metrics that Mm -hmm. usually you would look at at as a software as a service company but we said I mean of course we want to be financially um, sustainable we want to stand on our own feet and we don't really want to you know apart from maybe investments we don't want to um, get donations in order to survive. However, um, we kind of changed a lot in the sense of, for example, how do our partners interact with each other? So the vision is to kind of open up pathways for them to share content among e- amongst each other, even uh, if it's open source content, which also doesn't work very well right now because it's scattered all over. So the vision is like a kind of like a open source light version where if you build something, it's open source, you have it easier to connect it. Um, And if you build something and you still want 30 euro a month for it, you can still do that, but without, you know, having the same uh, kind of paywalls where like one learner costs like 3,000 euros in order to get a certificate. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one side. And the other side is um, that we want to have a plug-in system where um, we can obviously develop additional features, but also third party developers can also develop plugins. So if we have a partner and they say, please do X, Y, Z, and we say like, okay, we can't do it or we don't wanna do it or you know whatever, um, they can also outsource it. Some even have their own IT people or own techies, which are not enough to build their own product, but they are enough to you know build an API here and there or build an additional plugin that's so specific to them that only they need it. Um, so we kind of also want to open up on the tech side in a way that usually like standardized um, products don't do and in the end of course it's also the pricing as the last point because we say we don't want to kind of scale um costs um in the same way others do like with either admins or learner access um because otherwise like you can't scale your impact without having Scaling financial resources to be on the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's like kind of different pillars that we're at least trying to tackle that issue with. But a big,
2: a big like part of it is a plain old uh, open source movement and uh, releasing what you have and trying to engage the community. Yeah. Okay.
0: I can imagine that um, is not easy to understand for the investors that you're approaching. I know that you're. Fully in fundraising mode. Can you tell us uh, some like um, learnings you got from the from the process itself? Like, what you have to fight with from the investors, for example. I know the model itself probably it's hard to understand. Open source. Uh, How do you approach it? How do you explain it? Is it easy? How how is it going? So again, a good question, <laughs> <laughs>
1: depending on how honest I'm now. No, but um, I mean, it's different things, right? I think like obviously the model, like the financial model, I don't know. I don't have like thousands of comparisons, mm-hmm. right? But I think it's a bit more complex to grasp because it's not as straightforward, right? Like we don't say, okay, it's only, you know, monthly revenues over client like license fees. And that's how we scale. It's a bit more granular and has all kind of different aspects to it which is though also how it worked so far, right? Because we were kind of profitable from the first month we really went into business and we still are. But what really is challenging is kind of that, that legal setup. So like we, we still have like the NGO holds 100% right now from the for-profit. So like it's above the, the for-profit, which also means we as like, we call it founders or like spin-off managers or whatever. Like we also don't have any shares which totally made sense to us at the beginning because we said, like, we're coming from the NGO. So, like, we both worked at the NGO before, like, for two years, and then we kind of had that whole team that kind of helped to to form that spin-off. Um, so it was just natural. Like, why should we have any other status, you know, than the rest of the team who actually also made that product uh, happen? But that doesn't fit at all with mm-hmm. investment logics because mm-hmm. usually you have, like, a 50-50 or a 60-40 share between founders. Um and that whole setup, like pretty much everyone we talked to so far, <laughs> like show me someone else, but everyone we talked to, they said, okay, like that doesn't really work. Like, if you keep it like that, nobody will ever invest in you, mm-hmm. um, which I think is like a super sad sign. So I, I was kind of hoping, um, like before going through that myself, that that would be very different, at least if you go to impact investors who should understand the sector very well. Um but that hasn't been the case so far. Yeah, I, I feel that's I one of the biggest hurdles. Why,
2: like, I can imagine yeah. as well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which is totally fine, right? Like, um, yeah.
0: yeah. Of course, there are always pros and cons, uh, yeah. and like two sides of it. But maybe, problem. maybe
2: just to clarify it from from for everyone who is listening, just why why we are we, we <laughs> say that we can imagine why, like so typically. At at least in, on those uh, in those early stages of every company, the the only thing that is there is the team. I mean, there might be some prototype, there might be some MVP, but to make it super easy, kind of to simplify things, you invest in the team. And if the team doesn't have like enough interest, like uh, financial interest, financial stake in whatever the activity is, then the project is then obviously there's there's risks attached that maybe at some point they are going to say, well, it's a lot of effort, a lot of stress. Maybe it doesn't really make sense to me to, to go through it if I, if I'm not like well incentivized to, uh, to, to, to to make it work.
1: And I think that makes total sense, right? Like also not to get me wrong. Like I think it makes 100% mm-hmm. sense. but I think also um, I mean at least we need like a certain openness to then explore how do you, you together get to a setup that works for both sides, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Because I think how it works right now, like you send your your stuff somewhere, you have a first, second or maybe third call. um, But then, you know, like in the typical way, either it works or it doesn't work and you come to that decision rather quickly, right? And then you come to all the granular questions. But for us, it's always like we need a bit more steps in order to, you know, clear that and discuss that. And we are very open about it. And I think that's so unconventional that there's not a founder who says like, okay, you know, I want to keep at least 40 percent and then you know you can negotiate on that ground um and i think that that's something that has to change that there's companies also where for example the the financial interest is not the the first on the page right yeah. it's, it's the second and it's equally important right but it's it's the second one which also differentiates the the motivation behind that i think mm. for for a founder and then also for the team behind it right so I feel there's a bit a clash of culture, mm. um, which makes it interesting, but also a bit more challenging, I guess.
2: Yeah, we had a, a pretty similar conversation with uh, Ahim Hensen from the Purpose Network. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not going to be explaining like what, the whole concept. Uh, <laughs> who the everyone who is yes, <laughs> interested, um, uh, it's one of our um, previous episodes. But yeah. long story short, like very different model coming coming to investors, and all of a sudden they're like, no. No, this model it doesn't make any sense like if i look at regular yeah. companies that i invested in and uh, yeah it's it takes time for the ecosystem to find the ways of, mm-hmm. of making it work or or maybe once yeah
0: <laughs> i'm really curious how it's gonna uh, solve in your case maybe you can come back to another episode <laughs> and we can discuss like okay that's that's how we found a solution into it and maybe that will be a good, good start yeah. you know show the the good practices that are being created here now by those people, like give it a shot. Maybe you can do it as well. Uh,
2: but from my understanding, the fact that, the, the nonprofit, the mother company, um, owns, um, 100% of, of the off, from my understanding, it was also like your assumption that it's the way to go, but you're keen on changing things if necessary. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And
1: like how, I mean, even if, right? Like right now, even if is a question, depending on, uh, of course, again, who you find that would want to become a partner in that whole setting. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, at the very beginning, we actually wanted to keep it at the 100%. Um, however, we also learned like, okay, I mean, it's not really that bad if that goes down. Because in the end, you know, if that's what someone else needs in order to feel, again, secure to invest and also have more of a seat and a say on the ta- at the table, I mean, that's what it's all about as well. Um, we can change that. But yeah, obviously, it's some sort of uh, purpose economy setup, I would say, that we kind of created ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> um, without yeah, um, having, having other players uh, in there as well, like the purpose uh, foundation for example what about like venture debt
0: model investment model so i can imagine like in your case like not getting investors directly on board as a shareholders but rather giving you a debt that will might convert but not necessarily but it's rather about paying back money. Have you tried this one? What's the leader response uh, from, from this type of investment? That's a good question
1: again. Um, I mean, that's the first thing we tried last year. Um, maybe we didn't try it long enough, mm-hmm. so I think it's still an option. Um, actually, the people we talked to last year and again this year, they only talked to us again this year because we said we will do it uh, kind of more conventional way and ah, we won't okay. do it that way. So, Let's see. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I'm also not saying we are we are the perfect, and we tried everything. So everyone out there, we who, who haven't talked to, and says like, no, it's wrong. Then then uh, yeah, change that and reach out. But I think. Yeah it, there's like the more factors there are that make it unconventional the harder it gets to also try things like that um, But yeah let's see okay, nice. we'll end <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I, I have
2: I have one more question uh, looking so your example is of going from a nonprofit to to for profit obviously with a spin off not like transforming the organization but let's say let's assume I'm a I'm a founder I'm a social entrepreneur I already have like a like a normal business so like a for-profit organization do you see any cases when it would make sense for me to to have a spin-off of a a non-profit so going the other way around have you seen something like this on the market
1: I can't tell you numbers but I would say it's a bit more the conventional way maybe um, which makes sense in, in a ton of ways right because you can Um, also like given the hierarchy you can kind of make donations a bit easier right whereas there's still limitations to that but I mean maybe really answering your question like it totally makes sense but it's super individual right so Mm -hmm. I think you can do a lot without having two legal entities it's always a question like what actually is your product all about and what do you need in order to you know make that successful and then what vision do you have and like how can you make that more successful and I think if you have a for-profit first um, it might be an interesting way for example like there's models even where foundations hold shares of for-profits right and they were founded after Mm -hmm. you know so I mean there's also kind of big big examples um, where I think it sometimes um, has a different purpose so sometimes it's kind of protecting like a family business for example from the generational change and mm-hmm. like trying to keep that mission on track but um, you can kind of transfer that perfectly if you say you have a social mission that you also want to follow um, then usually it makes a lot of sense for example in Germany only to to save the taxes and the nonprofit and to um, maybe get a different stakeholders on board and different funding on board that doesn't only come from you or Um, I also know an example in our network, for example, uh, Quartiermeister, they actually do beer. (laughs) I also never knew before that beer can be social, Um, but it can be. And they actually have an EFAU, like a Verein, so non-profit on the side, um, because they also want um, kind of members to be a part of it right so it's also a different way of creating your own community mm-hmm. um, besides like just um, you know uh, donating and funding uh, interesting projects or tasks so there's different benefits again and send uh, okay. for example is an ifa as well right so there's again like uh, from a governance perspective um, many benefits that a uh, NGO or an if setting, uh, can bring.
2: So it's a matter of governance, um, making it easier to get donations since you're not profiting from donations, but everything stays within the organization. And the examples you gave was some sort of like, I would, I would call like an extraction of some sort of positive good that maybe it's not the best fit for the for-profit part of the business, but could be, could, could live as a separate one.
0: Yeah. Uh, I would say it's a pretty complicated and there are so many exceptions and there are so many models that you can go for. Uh, so where someone wants to like, you know, try it and find the, the best solution for himself as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. where to start? Go to SEND um, to Social Entrepreneurship Network Digital, or there's some other uh, place that someone could go and just like, you know, deep dive into the topic?
1: Totally. I mean, I would also say, like, start on our website and then (laughs) go from there. Like, we have a lot of, um, like, good, uh, actually also papers on, you know, what kind of different sorts of funding are there, depending on what Mm -hmm. legal entity you have, right? Because, I mean, this is, I think, the biggest decision. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, impact investing versus uh, foundation donations, which also usually can very often only go to an NGO site. So, like, we have those publications up there. We actually... Um, In a project with the Berlin uh, government, with the Ministry for Economy, we have a great project where then people actually do um, like founding hours and consultation hours that you can book. And Impact Hunt Berlin is one of the partners in that as well. Um, So you can actually book your experts um, and then also go from there and look to other players like Social Impact Lab and many other projects. There's more and more out there. And especially also not only in Berlin. I think that's the most <laughs> important thing. Um, it's growing uh, across the whole country now. Berlin is not
0: the end of the world. Come on, <laughs> uh, do you also have some materials for investors? To like, you know, educate them and not make them be scared of investing in social entrepreneurs? Um, like, explain like in easy baby steps. Like, okay, that's why it's
1: like that. Totally, we have that as well. And we actually have like, an annual um, financing conference as well where we bring all those stakeholders together mm-hmm. and bring them together with um, social enterprises and make them discuss again like how can you better like structure your programs or your funds or whatever in order to mm-hmm. fit better um, and that works quite well and there's related research to that as well maybe if you have show notes or something <laughs> we can link yeah that we as we're well. gonna <laughs> include
2: everything we we're gonna include everything and um...
0: everything will be on the comments uh, below the post
2: <laughs> Yeah, um, Sabrina, thank you so much for, for being with us today. It was a very interesting dive into non slash for-profit uh, interaction uh, topics uh, topic today. Uh, thank you so much for finding the time and for every listener, stay tuned for the next episodes.
1: Thanks so much thank for you. having me. <laughs>